0: hey this is pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church you're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning let's come to Jesus in prayer gracious Heavenly Father and Jesus the one who gives us rest the present Holy Spirit who comforts us in every affliction now as your church is gathered In your name, we ask great things of our great triune God. Now, in this hour, let Satan's captives be released. Now, even in this hour, would you bring the prodigals home? Now, in this moment, would you humble the self-righteous? Would you open blind eyes, grant us true repentance, and build up your church in faith and hope and love? Through worship and spirit and truth, and through the proclamation of your inerrant, abiding, living word. Amen. Amen. We open together to 1 Peter, and 1 Peter, church, 1 Peter really is a timely source of strength and hope in these troubling times. 1 Peter is a powerful summary of what we believe about salvation. And significantly for us right here and right now, 1 Peter is not just a summary of what we believe about salvation, but 1 Peter is an in-depth understanding of how to enjoy, appreciate, endure, and hold on to that salvation, even in the middle of shaking and suffering. The theme of 1 Peter is triumphant faith, in the middle of difficult suffering. The theme of First Peter is Christ-centered hope in an antagonistic world that does its best to take you out. Even the opening two verses of First Peter will awaken us to who we are and the way we're supposed to live, especially toward the end of 2023 and on into the year ahead of us, 2024. In this crazy world, First Peter will show us who we are, and how we ought to live. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 describes God's people three ways, geographically, uh, socially, and then theologically. Geographically, socially, and then theologically. You see it? It says in First Peter 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles So Peter describes the born-again ones, those who have a living hope, those who are destined for salvation and to arrive at final salvation through a temporary time of suffering. That's all of us. He describes his particular readers first geographically. He describes this region of what today we would call Turkey, the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia. And secondly, he gives sort of a social or a sociological description of them when he says to those who are elect exiles. We covered that concept last week. An elect exile, what does that mean an alien or a stranger? If after church today we ran over to Culver's or Qdoba for lunch and I'm in line and then you're behind me and then someone else is behind you and I'm in line dressed like this in my, in my Sunday suit and you're in line wearing your whatever you happen to have on uh, and then behind you there's a, a tall man in, a, in one of those flowing African robes. Arthur Kamau wore one last time he was here with us and you would immediately know This guy might not be from Sturtevant. You would just wonder where he's from and what is his story. That's close to it, but that's not exactly it. Maybe even closer is a a group that we've had a little bit of an opportunity to reach out to, and that's the migrant workers. The buses bring them in to to the farm fields all around our property here. And they are citizens of a different country many of them from Latin America, Central America, South America, and they have a special work visa that lets them temporarily travel here, make a little bit of money, and send it home. Peter says that believers are elect exiles. Elect is the positive blessing. The exiles, we might think that that means things are gonna be difficult, But when we look at what the world that we're exiled from really is, maybe being in exile is in part a blessing too. We talked about that last week. The third description is the one we'll cover this week, and that is the theological description. Three things that are true about you if you're a Christian. First, you have been chosen by the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Second, you are chosen for sanctification by the Spirit of God. And third... To obey Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Three things that are true of every Christian. One, every Christian is chosen by God the Father. Every Christian is foreknown, foreordained, predestined, elect, called by God the Father. Now, when you became a Christian, You believed the gospel. When you became a Christian, you said, I want to let go of my sin and I want to cling to Jesus Christ. That's saving faith. When you became a Christian, you came to Christ. You did those things. But back behind you doing those things, there was one who chose you and effectually called you and brought you in. And that's God the Father. Second, every Christian is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When you're sanctified, you confess your sin. When you're sanctified, you become a person, this shouldn't be shocking. When you become sanctified, you become a person who says things like this, I have been doing the wrong thing and I need to change. That's the process of Christian sanctification. So when you are sanctified, you start to change your ways. You start to change the way you think, the way you feel, the way you speak, the way you behave, and you are making those changes. But back behind those changes that you are making is the energizing life of the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. That's what makes it Christian sanctification rather than behavior modification or moral uh, development. And third, every Christian is cleansed by the blood of Christ for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That means that you understand that the wages of sin is death. And if you are going to be saved, another has to die in your place and you have to be sprinkled by his blood. This is what it all boils down to, isn't it? Upon a life, I did not live. Upon a death, I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. This is our gospel. Now the word of God here describes three things that are true about you, and did you notice, as an Orthodox Christian church, when we start talking about three, we ought to, ought to automatically start thinking what? Chocolate, strawberry, vanilla, no. <laughs> we ought to automatically start thinking what? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. To describe these three things that are true about you, we have God the Father, we have God the Holy Spirit, and we have God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, We have God choosing his people. We have the operation of that choice happening through the converting and sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have the grounding of the reality of our salvation in the life and death and resurrection of the Son of God, the second person of the triune God. The work of the Spirit, our obedience to Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, the triune God, Father, Father in, in this telling of it, Father, Holy Spirit, and Son, is accomplishing our salvation in these three things that are true of us. So I want to show you here from First Peter who you are and what you're called to in a world that's difficult and crazy and getting crazier and more difficult as the days go by. First, every one of you, if you are a Christian, has been chosen or foreknown by God the Father, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, if you open up the Bible and start in Genesis, maybe this maybe this sounds strange to you. But if you open up the Bible and start in Genesis, you will start finding the deep biblical teaching of uh, of election and God's choice and God foreordaining things right there in the opening pages of Genesis. You can't escape from it. I've been reflecting lately how maybe you don't realize, uh, I was going to say lucky. Lucky is the wrong word for it. Maybe you don't realize how blessed you are to be a covenant member or at least uh, an attender of a church where in our ABF classes, in in our adult Bible fellowships, we go through all of the books of the Bible. That is a tremendous blessing. Because it's easy to grab a theology book or this or that or the other thing. But the the safest place to be is to go verse by verse by verse by verse through God's word so that we really can do what Jesus said we ought to be doing, which is observe everything that he's commanded us every day of our lives. It is a huge blessing to be in Genesis. And if you're going through Genesis in your ABF, you have already seen God's choice and God's election like right from the get-go. There's a whole world and then there's Noah picked out and his family. Then there is a whole, uh, I don't know how, how many multitudes in Ur and one is called and his name is changed. Abram is called to be Abraham. He's given a new destiny and a new name and then as his sons go on not through the merit of their own doings, but by God's mysterious choice that Genesis is gonna tell us over and over. God chose Isaac and he did not choose Ishmael. That God chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau. So when we have these things, th- these words popped in here like elect and chosen and according to the foreknowledge, it's, it's, with a, it's with an entire backdrop of biblical using these words that we're supposed to read them. In other words, the, the, I'm, I'm just saying the best place to go to figure it out isn't the study notes in your uh, Arminian study Bible or your Calvinist study Bible. The best place to go to understand them is just to see how these words are used in the unfolding narrative of Scripture. That's where our safety is. Every line of every word in the Word of God. So what does God's foreknowledge mean? A couple of key references from the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll just read them to you. Well, because frankly, one of them is in Amos, and it would probably take you 20 minutes to find that book anyway, so I'm just going to, sorry for insulting you, but I'll I'll just read it to you. So the first one is in Jeremiah 1, verse 5, and it says this, Jeremiah 1, verse 5 says this, now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I chose you to appoint you a prophet to the nations. That's God speaking to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, and he says, before before, before I formed you in the womb, I foreknew you. Hear those, the emphasis in those verbs. It's all God's action. It's all God's knowledge, God's wisdom, God's plan. And then Amos chapter three, verse two, I see a couple of you took me up on my challenge and you're like, here's Amos in your face. Okay, fine, you did it. Amos chapter three, verse two, God says, oh, people of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. What a curious saying. God says, Yahweh God says, O Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. If foreknowledge only means that God can see ahead of time what you're gonna do on your own, unaided by him, then is God really saying that God knows ahead of time what Israel's gonna do, but God doesn't know ahead of time what Egypt or Ur or Babylon is gonna do? You see, God's usage of foreknowing there, it doesn't just mean that he sees ahead of time what people are gonna do without his control. It means that he sets his special love upon them. The, The Hebraic expression of knowing even of loving intimacy and belonging and union. Foreknowledge doesn't simply mean that God has advanced information about what you're going to do with your mighty right arm. Foreknowledge means that God chooses by his own sovereign decree of grace and goodness some to be the special objects of his loving redemption. And get the scope and sequence of it here. You see verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, I'm just, let me make the point again, you're better off just paying careful attention to the verse you're in than you are grabbing some study notes because look what it says. In answer to the question, does foreknowledge just mean that God sees we're gonna do the right thing and obey ahead of time? No, because look what it says. Foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ. The foreknowledge is so that we will obey See, that is a strong teaching, and it it pops off many questions in our minds, which aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but uh, I don't know questions about election and foreknowledge. Let me tell you a little story. This is a a true story that the old pastor did this. I myself, as a semi old pastor, I have not done this personally, but I want to, and I might. I might. So, somebody from his church came to him, a good somebody, and they said, I have a lot of questions about election and Calvinism and all that stuff. I want to meet with you and talk about them. And his old pastor said, that's great. We can get together and talk about those questions and we can take as long as you need to talk through those questions. And to get things rolling, because those questions are like graduate level To get things rolling, let's start our conversation with some kindergarten level questions. And as soon as we take some time to answer those kindergarten level questions, then we can get to those graduate level questions, okay? Okay. So then they set up a time to get together and the pastor, this old pastor, sent the person who had these questions six kindergarten questions. And he said, after you've answered these six questions, then we can spend all afternoon talking about Calvinism. And here they are. Question number one and two. Would you please name two sins that you have repented of this month? Questions three and four. Would you please write down the names of two hurting, needy members of this church whom you have reached out to with compassion and love this month? Questions five and six. Would you please write down the names of two non-Christians who you're actively praying for and actively seeking to find open doors to demonstrate the reality of the gospel in their lives? And after we take a few minutes to answer those six questions, we take all afternoon and talk about the ins and outs of divine election. We have many questions about election. Some of us need to get through the kindergarten of just not becoming uh, what we would be on our own pride and instead being humble and just obeying line by line and step by step. But just to summarize what he says here about foreknowledge, Peter is not answering any of those questions about election in this passage. He's not defending the doctrine of election. He's not uh, backfilling the doctrine of election. All he's doing is applying it. He's applying it, and this is wonderful to me because he's writing to hurting, suffering, beat-down believers. And what he says is simply this, I understand that the whole world is telling you that you're nobody and you're nothing. The one thing I want you to understand is that God himself has set his eternal electing love on you. That's what he's doing with the doctrine of election. He's not even so much interested in all of the ins and outs of it. He is applying it to needy outcast exiles. And that is so good. That's so good. Church, when suffering comes, and it does, it is, what a comfort it is to realize God didn't give us like generic existence, we are not existential persons. God didn't just spin the top and then walk away. God foreknew you before you were in your mother's womb. And God had a calling and a destiny for you before you ever made any choices and decisions on your own. This is such a tremendous comfort in a world that causes us sorrow and suffering and just machine guns at us situations and questions that we're not smart enough to figure out? God knows us, and he sets his love upon us. Three things that are true of you. That's the first one, church. The second one, every Christian is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What does sanctification mean? Sanctification means something is set apart for a special purpose. Something is set apart from the common and set apart to be holy. We have uh, in our house, uh, all of our kids are grown up and gone, but we still have a dog who is like a little child. And in our house, because we don't like the smell of our dog's breath, he has a toothbrush and toothpaste and we brush his teeth. And we sanctify the dog's toothbrush right? I mean, if, if you get in a jam and you got to stay with us for a couple days, are you going to be thankful that we have sanctified the, the dog's toothbrush apart from the guest toothbrush? It means to be set apart for a, a special purpose. Sanctification, when we talk about it, it usually means the, the progressive process by which we stop acting like the world and we start acting like Jesus Christ. We stop with uh, what Peter calls the useless and vain ways that we adopted from our ancestors and instead like obedient children of God we pursue holiness. Sanctification is that in uh, almost all of the epistles where it is used but the way Peter uses sanctification here I'm more tempted to take it that he, he almost means conversion because he says we're the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the spirit spirit for the purpose of obedience so he's using sanctified like you were snatched out of the world and placed into Jesus Christ the moment you were snatched out of death and into life by the Holy Spirit of God so sanctification whether we're talking about conversion or whether we're talking about the ongoing process of overcoming sin, can I at least say this and not get any argument from from the rest of you? Sanctification is difficult. Sanctification is difficult. Question, how difficult is sanctification? Peter's answer. Sanctification is so difficult that it requires much, much, much more than your best effort and my best effort. Sanctification is so difficult that it requires the uh, indwelling. Like, you know, you know the temple and, and the glory of God, the kind of indwelled the temple. The, the, sanctification is so difficult. Sanctifying your little temple of your feet and your hands and your mouth is so difficult that it requires the spirit of God himself indwelling you to make that operation happen. Which tells you a couple of things. You are way more messed up than you think you are. And God is way more capable of fixing you. Not in eternity, now. God is way more capable of fixing you now than you ever thought he was. Because this is why Jesus ascended to heaven. You know when he leaves, he's almost like, guys, I don't want to leave because I love you so much. What is better for you that I leave? Because as soon as I get there, along with the Father will proceed from me the Holy Spirit who will indwell you. What a gift, what a gift. I'm listening to these lectures on First Peter by uh, an African teacher. He lives in Kenya, not far from the Kamungis. His name is Ken, M- I don't know how to say his last name, Mbugye, and uh, I just wrote this down because he said this in the lecture I listened to a couple of weeks ago. Peter is providing for his audience ultimate assurance about present reality by anchoring their earthly pursuit of sanctification back in the eternal decree of God. Nothing in this hostile world will stop God's plan to make his people holy. I just wrote that down because it comforted me in a hostile, difficult world. Church, what that means is the, the, the process of sanctification for you I know is difficult and it's difficult for more than two reasons, but at least two reasons. One reason sanctification is difficult for you is because uh, you're a sinner with bad appetites and wrong habits, and it's hard for you to overcome yourself. But can I tell you, it in, w- w- with hopefully genuine mercy and understanding, a second reason sanctification is difficult for you is because there are other persons who have sinned against you And that makes your life more difficult. And it makes your Christian calling and behavior more difficult. Your sanctification is difficult because of your own sin, but also because of the way that others sin against you. And in the midst of such difficulty, how is it that we can be sure, we can be sure that we're gonna keep going and endure? Let me just read again what I wrote down from from those lectures from that Kenyan professor. He says, Peter is providing for his audience ultimate assurance about present reality by anchoring their earthly pursuit of sanctification in the eternal decree of God. Nothing in this hostile world will be able to stop God's plan to make his people holy. This is good news and it ought to cause us to rejoice. Three things that are true of you. You're foreknown by God the Father You're sanctified by God the Spirit. And then third, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Where does this term sprinkling come from? It comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus which is admittedly easier to find than the book of Amos. But it comes from this ceremony in Exodus 24 where the covenant is in a sense confirmed and ratified. And what is sprinkled in that ceremony in Exodus 24 is blood. Listen, it says in Exodus 24, beginning in verse uh, verse 6, Well it says Moses read the words of the law to the people and then it says he built an altar. And then it says in verse six of Exodus 24, Moses took half of the blood of the animals that had been cut and he put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then Exodus 24 seven, he took the book of the covenant. That is the law which we're supposed to obey. He took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So it's strikingly clear that Peter has this in mind because he mentions obedience and he mentions the sprinkling of the blood. It's this paradigmatic or essential beginning story of the sprinkling at the covenant confirmation that Peter's referring back to in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says that we are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Why do we need to be sprinkled with his blood? Because only the blood of Jesus will take away our sin. The wages of sin is death. And if I'm gonna make it, it's going to be upon a life I have not lived and upon a death I did not die. It's going to be because of Jesus. He speaks of Jesus' blood further in the same chapter. First Peter 1, where is it? Verse uh, 19, that you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, you see? Peter is referring to the blood of the goats and the rams and the bulls in Exodus 24, but that's not his ultimate referent. He's telling the picture of what Moses did, but his ultimate referent is that which is before the foundation of the world, the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's saying this is what's true of every Christian. Every Christian has been sprinkled by his blood. And when you're sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, what happens? You become a person who is obedient to Jesus. You become a person who's obedient to Jesus. And you become a person in whom grace and peace is multiplied. All because of the presence of Jesus inside of you. All because of his forgiveness. All because of his grace. You're saved by God's grace. And then you live as obedient children. A Christian is a person who has been born again to a living hope and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus and is being sanctified by the spirit of God. So the Christian becomes someone who doesn't fit in this world anymore. Hence, she or he is a sojourner, an exile, and we receive the condemnation and rejection of the world because we have received the acceptance and the love of God himself. So church, if these three things are true of you, if these three things are true of you, you have become a person who is very strange in this world. You have. I just want to tell you, stop trying to get the world to think that you're just like them. You're not. If these three things are true of you, you have become a person who is an alien and a stranger. Notice the way that Peter applies these three things, particularly even the doctrine of election, in the lives of the suffering believers. He speaks of these things, God's foreknowledge and the spirit sanctification and the, and the blood of Jesus as a, as a sort of firewall, as a sort of firewall that's meant to protect us from falling into despair when we suffer. It's a sort of a firewall that's meant to protect us from reading our current suffering and going, well, I'm not gonna make it. Well, God's not really true to his promises. You see, church, when we suffer... And I've, I think it's fair to say in the last 14, 21 days, I've talked to an unusually high number of folks who are in crisis and who are suffering. Folks, when we suffer, when we suffer, we tend to, to take the present and read that back into the past. We're like, things are difficult. I wonder if God is isn't really who he says he is. Or we read the present into the future. Things are difficult. I wonder if I'm not really going to make it. And what Peter does is he does the exact inversion of that. Peter wants you to read eternity past and eternity future into your present suffering. He does not want you to conjecture about possible futures based on the current pain of your suffering. He wants your assurance that you've been born again to a living hope that will never fade away. He wants that to be what pulls you through your current experience of suffering. But in our humanity and in our frailty and in our skittishness, like so many rabbits who just run back to our hole when when there's a shadow in the sky over us, we tend to read read everything from our present. And we shouldn't do that because through many dangers, toils, and snares, we will have to walk through this life. But don't confuse the, the many dangers and toils and snares with God's, with God's ultimate purpose. We're gonna make it. When, even when times get difficult and even when suffering gets severe, I can tell you from the book of 1 Peter, you will never find the hand of Jesus more stable than when everything around you is shaking. We're elect exiles and we're strangers. So if these things are true of you, the first thing I want to encourage you, church, is when things are difficult, don't read your present, don't read everything from your present difficulty. Read the future and the past first into your present difficulty. And second, I wanna, I want to to encourage you, like I said, to, to to be okay with being weird and strange in the world because we are aliens. You know, it reminds me of this guy in the Bible named Demas. He's like, good. And if you were Demas the first couple times he's mentioned, you're all right. But the problem is he's mentioned again in the end. This guy Demas is mentioned in Colossians. He's mentioned somewhere else. He's mentioned a couple times and he's called the fellow worker of Paul. The valuable fellow worker of Paul. And that's good. But then Demas is mentioned again in the last letter that Paul wrote, the letter of 2 Timothy. And Paul says, Demas, who has loved this present world has deserted me. You see? Demas was called an elect exile, a stranger, a sojourner whose whose city is heaven. But somewhere in his life, he decided, no, I want this city, not that one. I want this present world to love me and accept me and cuddle up to me. I don't want that one. And when Demas loved this present world, he deserted those who were serving Jesus Christ. When professing Christians are absorbed into the world so that Christianity becomes alien to them and worldliness becomes first place for them, this, is, this leads us to... Uh, Pray for for their immediate repentance that if they are God's child, he will discipline them as it says he will in Hebrews 12 or it leads us to that conclusion in 1 John 2 that they went out from us because they weren't authentically of us. But either way, either way, the point is be okay with being strange and weird and not fitting in with the world around you because that's what we're called to. That's really who we are. When When we forget that, When we forget who we are, we forget what we're supposed to be doing and like the whole thing falls apart. Simple illustration. It's uh, I just just remember this. It was a time that I was out to breakfast with my dad and uh, we were driving from my mom's relations in Mississippi to Oklahoma and because we were in the South and we were hungry at breakfast, we stopped at Waffle House and the the Waffle House says we never close. Truth in advertising would require them to put we never close, therefore we never clean because it's Waffle House. But we stopped at Waffle House and I just remember being with my dad, uh, maybe this was around the time my grandma died. But uh, anyway, um, we both ordered ice water and we both ordered black coffee because that's the way my dad taught me how to drink my coffee, the way I still drink it to this day. And we ordered, you know, their waffles and potatoes and all that. And I finished my water. I finished my coffee. Dad finished his water and finished his coffee. Place isn't that busy. And we look. There's three servers. And they're all just in the corner looking at a phone or laughing about something. We're like, they didn't didn't do anything. (laughs) So finally, I remember I just got up. And I went to where the coffee pot was and I got it and I refilled our coffees and I put the coffee pot back and they never quit looking at whatever it was they were looking at. (laughs) What's the point? The point is they forgot who they are. They forgot what they're here for. They forgot what they're there for. They forgot who they are. And beloved church, that is so easy to do. That's so easy to do. Because this world is a world of sight and of sensuous experience. And from our father, Adam, and our mother, Eve, we're just driven towards sight and sensuous experience. And yet God says we walk by faith, not by sight. And God says that our true blessings and our true pleasures are in Zion City, not down here. So church, let First Peter, even these first two verses of First Peter, convince you of who you are and why you're here. And if they do, you will be one who endures till the end. Let's bow in prayer. We bow for prayer. I just give you a a moment to pray. To thank God the Father and to praise God the Spirit and to rejoice in the blood of God the Son sprinkled on you. how we thank you for this marvelous salvation and how we simply ask that we would remember who we are and why we're here. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.